We've been journeying through the tabernacle in our uh, journey through Exodus. And you'll recall that last week we looked at the, uh, the bronze altar. The series we're on going through the tabernacle is called Not Without Blood. Not Without Blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Bible says you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot, without blemish. Kind of reminds me of the story that was told by Peter Lord. He's a retired pastor and he had a church in Titusville, Florida, I believe it was, and now he goes around and speaks all over the place and I just always love to hear him share, and he's got a real great sense of humor. And I've told this probably before, so bear with me, because when you get to be where I'm at now in life, you repeat a lot. And um, <clears throat> the um, he was about to get on an airplane and travel from uh, Florida to Ohio, where Michael's been this week. And before he got in the airplane, he looked over there, and he saw that the Florida lottery was up to $60 million. And so he was just talking with the Lord, and uh, he said, Lord, um, how about this? If you'll give me the numbers, the winning number to the lottery, because you know what they are, and I'll play it, and uh, that won't be like betting, because it'll be a sure thing. I know I'm going to win, you know, and I'll give every bit of it to missions. And so he got on the plane, and just visited with the Lord, and fellowship with the Lord, and got midway into his flight, and the Lord just put this on his heart. He said, uh, if I thought money would change the world, I would send money instead of my son. Amen. And uh, hey, money won't purchase and redeem men, women and boys and girls on the blood of Christ will do that. Hallelujah to His name, but His blood will do it. And we talked about last week and how all the furnishings, everything about the tabernacle, every little detail, and there's a lot of detail in the Bible about it, enormous detail about building it, in every little detail. And we're only just flying over and just taking the major parts. We're missing a lot and we're going by a lot. But every little detail of the tabernacle points to Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on the cross and His resurrected life and the hope that we best in it. And the, the bronze altar, you recall last week we said, is a, it typifies Christ's redemptive work on the cross on our behalf. And we talked about that when you go in through the gate and there's only one gate, and it faces the east. It always faces the east wherever they set it up. And you go into the one gate. As you enter in, the first piece of uh, furnishing that you come to is the bronze altar. And we talked about the fact that, you know, you don't have a relationship with God except through the cross of His Son. And this brazen altar, this bronze altar, represents the cross of Jesus. And we went into that last week. And now, there's only one ordained way to approach God, and that's through the cross. But as we make our way into further into the tabernacle, we're going to uh, encounter another piece of the furnishings of the tabernacle, and that was going to be the bronze laver. That's what we're going to look at this morning, God willing. That was the next piece that you come to as you walk in. And this is the bronze laver. That's a, um, a, a rendering of it. We don't know the size of the, of the laver, and we'll get into that in a moment, but it's the only piece of furniture in the tabernacle in which there's, the size of it is not given. The dimensions are not given. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get that, get to that in a little bit, God willing. 
So, it's the bronze labor, labor that we next encounter. And let's, we're going to look at that as we begin in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. So, in reverence and respect for God's holy word, if you're physically able, would you stand with me right now as we read it? Exodus chapter 30, 17 through 21. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash with hand, their hands and feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. That's the word of the living God. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. Last week, when we looked at the bronze altar, we looked at what the Bible treats, in particular in Romans chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 21 through Romans chapter 5, verse 11, what is called the doctrine of justification. It is at the cross of Calvary that we are justified before a holy God. That's where God takes ungodly people who we all are because we're all sinners, and He justifies them in His sight through the gift of, of the life of the substitute who died in our place and His name is Jesus Christ. But to be justified before God, to be justified before God means this. It doesn't mean just pardon, although it involves pardon. It doesn't mean forgiveness, although it involves forgiveness. Let me tell you what it means. It means that we are declared in the sight of God not guilty. Did you hear that? Not guilty. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's one thing if you pardon somebody and forgive them for a crime, it doesn't erase the fact that they're guilty of it. When you forgive somebody for something they've done to you, it doesn't erase the fact that they are indeed guilty of the offense. But the cross of Calvary and God's redemptive work through His Son is so pure, it's so complete, it is so accepted by God, He takes you and I who are walking in darkness, who are now walking in light as His children, he transforms us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And the gavel of heaven comes down and said, Sacrifice accepted through the substitutionary atoning death of my son. Ray Morris is clean. He is not guilty. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Is there a message out there that rivals that? And the work of justification is what we see in the bronze altar. Now, there are about ten points that we're going to make, and we're not going to get through all of them today, but we're going to make about the or so about the bronze labor and how it relates to our life in Christ. The first is the bronze altar, that's where we're justified before a holy God. Now we come to the bronze labor, and the bronze labor is a picture of sanctification. It is a picture of once having gone through the cross, once having put our faith and trust in Christ, once having repented toward God and put faith in His Son, which is what salvation is, at the cross of Calvary, trusting in His redemptive work there, 
to pay for our sins. We have come to the bronze altar. Now we're moving on in toward an intimate relationship with Him. And the next piece of furniture we come to is the bronze laver. Now let's talk about it for a minute. The priests were instructed to wash their hands and their feet to purify themselves before they would enter the tabernacle, the tent, further in. And the only... Uh, what would happen to them was is that they did not do it. They'd die. Pretty good incentive to wash your hands and your feet. You go any further in here, you go any further into the holy place and the most holy place, if that's not preceded by a washing at the bronze labor, you would die immediately. Now, we have, we've gone through, we've entered in the cross of Calvary, and now we need to look at the configuration. That's the first word we're going to look at. We're going to look at the configuration, in other words, the location of the bronze labor. Exodus 30, verse 18 says this. Let's look at it carefully. This is very important. These doctrines are so important to get straight into Christian life so that we don't get tripped up and misunderstand God's redemptive, ongoing redemptive work in the life of the believer. It says in 18 that... The instructions say that you are to make a labor of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing and you shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. It is after the altar and it's before the tabernacle. Now, the gate represents Jesus. The altar represents His cross that He died on in our place. Jesus is the door. You remember He said that in John chapter 10. I'm the door. If anybody tries to come into the, into the building any other way, He's the same as a robber and a thief. You only come through the door, and the door is Jesus. He is the gate. He stands there bidding us come under the conviction and power of the Holy Spirit. Then we come to the altar and we come to the cross. Now, by the time we get to the bronze labor, and the bronze labor is depicted there for you, is in between... Let's go to a broad picture of the tabernacle. Let's go back to that. It is located in between. It's the bronze altar is right here. You come to the gate, the door, which represents Jesus. Then you come to the bronze altar, which represents the cross. And then the bronze laver is right here. And then the most holy, the holy place and the most holy place representing intimate fellowship with God is right there. So in between the cross and in between a deeper work of fellowship with Jesus is this need for sanctification. That's why it's there. It has to be positioned there. So there is the configuration. It has to be there. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about that once you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you're clean, period. But there is an ongoing need for a cleansing in the life of a believer. This is incredibly important. This is someone who's already a believer, born again by the Spirit of God. The trip to the bronze laver and what happens there has nothing to do with my salvation. Nothing to do with it. My last name is Lewis. On October 30th, 1961, I was born into the Lewis family. And then, several years later, at People's Baptist Church in Hazelhurst, Georgia, God convicted me of my sin and showed me my need of a Savior. I repented of my sins, put my faith in Christ, and I became a born-again member of the family of the living God. Just like I can't do anything to get myself out of the Lewis family because I'm a member of it by birth, I can't do anything to get myself out of God's family because I'm a member of it by birth. 
I have a brand new identity. Hallelujah. Praise His holy name. This does not have anything to do with, this does not have anything to do with my standing with God. It has to do with my state with God. Uh, the labor is state, not standing. That's where it's dealt with. So the priest came in. He had priestly garments on. He was clothed in those garments, which is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. But this is a picture of a believer who has come to the cross of Calvary because there's no other way to become a believer and now is moving in toward, symbolized by this tent, an intimate, more intimate relationship with the Lord. And in between that move is the bronze labor. Alright, that's a picture of the need for sanctification or the ongoing work of sanctification in the life of a believer. The cross of Jesus Christ took care of the penalty for our sin. The cross of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ takes care of the power it has to rule over us. And we have one day to look forward to the fact that we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. But right now, we have sin problems and sin issues in the life of a believer. And we have an ongoing daily need for cleansing. The Bible says to put on Jesus Christ. It means by faith, put on and begin to act out through the power of the Holy Spirit what is already true of you. You have a brand new identity. Let me ask you a question. On a scale from 1 to 100, 1 or 0 being completely unrighteous and 100 being perfectly righteous, where is Jesus? He's 100. Okay, as a blood-bought believer here this morning, positionally, not how you act, but positionally, as of right now, as of right now, in the courtroom of heaven, based on what Christ did for you and His substitutionary atoning death, having placed my trust in that, positionally, from a scale from zero to a 100, as a believer, where are you? You're a 100. You are in Christ. You have a brand new identity. And now, the Christian life, we're left down here on this earth for us to die to all that used to bind us so that the resurrected life of Jesus Christ can be seen in us. And that process is called sanctification. Salvation occurs in an instant. Sanctification takes place over time. And so once we go beyond that altar, then we become, we were to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is a position, the place of a believer who's not yet in the place of intimate communion with the Lord, but by God's grace, He's headed there. Can I say this to you? It is possible to be a believer. It is possible to be a believer and dabble around in the outer court for your entire Christian life. It is possible. And some of you, including me, have been there. Messing and gombing out here. That's South Georgia for messing around. Messing around out here in the outer court never entering into the fullness of what it means to walk in a relationship, an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because see, as we continue to proceed inside the tabernacle, the fellowship is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Your motivations change completely for the reason you want to serve God and bring glory to His name. It is because you've received His love, and as a result of receiving His love, you love Him. And when you love Him, He compels you to love other people because He loves them too. And so as we move on into the deeper work of fellowship, there's this need for cleansing. So the configuration is, it's exactly where God intended it to be to typify the fact that we need cleansing. When you dabble around on the outside, and you dabble around under natural sunlight, you're dabbling around in there with other believers, uh, I mean with non-believers. Outside that wall, the sunlight that you operate under, and the light that you have, 
is given to non-believers who are outside the wall just as well. The Bible says that God calls it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You're standing there with no, you're saved, you're redeemed, and that's it. And you're not enjoying the fullness of a blessing of an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you something, we're going to go into this later, but that, that inner holy place there has four coverings over it. And as you would suspect, every one of those coverings have deep, deep personal meaning. So from the outside, that building was a drab building. It wasn't an, it wasn't appealing, it wasn't an appealing place on the outside. But you get on the inside. You get on the inside. And it's full of the glory of God. And it's ornate and gold. That golden lampstand, probably in today's dollars, will be worth 10 or $15 million. And God gave all those artists the ability to, 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 to anointing of the Holy Spirit to build that thing. But you don't know of the glory until you get in there. And so that's where God wants the believer to head. That's where He wants. But in between the brazen altar and the holy place is the labor. And until you get in communion inside the holy place, you don't know the glory of it. See, the holy place, inside the holy place, is lit up not by the natural sun, but the inside of the holy place is lit up by that lamp. And that lamp is a type of the Holy Spirit. And that lamp sustains you and that lamp's available regardless of what's going on on the outside. Hallelujah. But before you go in there, you've got to wash your hands and your feet. Are you really this morning saying that it's enough, saved, and that's it? I'm going to heaven? Or do you want heaven to come to you? i got a friend of mine who wrote a song. And I said, man... Uh, Eddie, you really got a hold of the Lord when you wrote the song. He said, I wonder if it's, it's uh, my heart is already there is the name of the song. And, and um, it says that, Lord, you're leaving me here to see how much of heaven is living in me. How much of heaven is living in me. Heaven's a destination, but it's really a state. It is a, be it's a place of being. It is a walk. It is fellowship with Jesus. What makes heaven heaven except the presence of God? And what makes hell hell except the absence of the presence of God? I'm not satisfied. And I hope you're not either. Of just saying, well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm avoiding hell. That's a wonderful thing. Oh, but dear ones, there's so much more to it. There's so much more to it. Now let's look at the composition of it. We've looked at the configuration. Now let's look at the composition. It was made of all brass. It was made of all brass. Brass, we talked about, speaks of judgment. You recall, when we looked at the brass um, altar, it was um, a wood that was in abundance, a type of wood that was in abundance, acacia, in the Sinai region, and it was overlaid with brass. And we talked about the fact that that's symbolic of the Christ's humanity, that God did become a man. And then God's judgment was placed upon Him as our substitute because we deserve to be judged. And now we're looking at the bronze laver, and it is made entirely. I mean, the brass laver, bronze laver, is made entirely, entirely of brass, pure brass. It is this great opportunity afforded by a holy God for us to judge our sin to save God from the having to do it for Himself. How many times in the Lord's Supper? We have the Lord's Supper once a month in this dear church. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, which is where I would just implore you to turn right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Go with me there, will you? 
1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have the Lord's Supper. <coughs> and we read these instructions about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to read beginning in verse 27. It's a call for examination before we participate in the Lord's Supper. Look what it says. Therefore, who eats this, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks, what? Judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body not really discerning, moving away from an awareness of the fact that your redemption and my redemption as believers was purchased by a priceless gift, and that gift was the gift of the blood of Jesus Christ. Treating it as a common thing, according to Hebrews chapter 10, insulting the Spirit of grace, trampling underfoot. Oh, wait a minute! I'm in. I can live the way I want to. After all, all i got to do is confess it and ask God to forgive me. Grace is greater than all my sin. Exploiting grace. Having an attitude of complacency towards sin. Numbing it down. Excusing it away. Blaming it on other people. I'm a victim. You don't understand my circumstances. After all, I'm predisposed to this, that, or the other. Not discerning the Lord's body, not discerning what He did to purchase us at Calvary, and look at the look at look at the look at the result of that. He says in verse thirty, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You know what that is? Died. The apostle Paul comes to this divisive church. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. They were, there was rank and file sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. They were divisive. They were contentious. All of this was going on and many of them were going to a premature grave because they kept doing that in God's face just kind of going, God, what about it? And God endured it and put up with it and was patient with it, but God did judge it. And so what did God do? He gave them instructions about the Lord's Supper, which is one of the reasons why we always read this when we do the Lord's Supper. And He said this. Look at verse 31. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but to sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That God does spank His children. The Bible says that blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. God does judge His people, not for our sin but for our works. He flat does it. That is not an Old Testament principle alone. That is New Testament truth. We're in Corinthians. Can I say this? What did it say would happen to the priest? What is the future of the priest who would dare walk by the bronze altar and would dare pass by the laver and not wash his hands? What was his future? Death! What does it say? This reason many of you are sick and weak among you and many of you sleep. 
You're walking right by the altar. You're walking right by the water. It's been provided for. It's right there. You think you can sidestep that. You think you can just sashay by that and it go unnoticed. I'm a patient and I'm a merciful God, but I will vindicate. I will protect my name. I'll flat do it. That's what a merciful, righteous God said. Curious, isn't it? Isn't it curious that we would take and pervert Scripture to the point that we would say, you know what? America needs to repent. Does America need to repent? Absolutely. But is that God's call? You know what God's call is? God's call is for the church to repent. It says, 2 Chronicles 7.14, most of you have this memorized probably, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and what? Turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. God's not up in heaven waiting for America to repent. God's in heaven waiting for the church to repent. Citizenship in America and citizenship in heaven are two different things. They're two different things. You can possess both, but you can also very easily have one without the other. Did you know the Lord said that it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God? And if judgment begins with the house of God, what's the hope for the sinner? Have you ever seen a time in the Christian community where we've had less of a regard for the sinfulness of sin? Have you ever seen a time in the Christian community when we're more loose and goosey about it? And boy, we talk about God's love and God is love. We talk about God's grace and God is gracious. Hallelujah. We talk about God's patience and He's patient. I'm proof positive of that. But let me tell you this. God's also righteous and just and holy. He's all those things. He's all those things. He's all those things to perfection. And He wants a clean bride. As clean as we can be. That place of fellowship and that place of intimacy is not, you're not and I are not a candidate for it unless we stop at the bronze labor and we cleanse our hands and our feet. Unless we do that, we're not a candidate. It's not like you can just get in and stay for a while. It's like you die before you ever dare get in. Do you think in America that we can make the case in the church in America and in this room right now that we have believers in abundance, believers, I'm talking about legitimate blood-bought believers in abundance who are wandering around in the courtyard and are satisfied with it? I think we can make the case for that. I do. All right, we've looked at the configuration. We've looked at the composition. Now let's look at the contents. Exodus chapter 30, verse 18, and then we'll close. We'll have to finish up the bronze labor next because this thing is, oh my goodness. Whew. There's so many, it's just, it's just teeming with truth. And we're just hitting the highlights. Exodus 30, 18, what does it say? What is the contents? And you'll fill it with water. You will put water in it. In the types, 
this is far we'll be get, we'll be able to get this morning with it. Blood purchased the relationship. The blood of Christ. Water ensures the fellowship. Blood purchased the relationship. Water ensures the fellowship. You see, we're a child forever. And we don't do anything to keep that. Anything that we do after going to the brazen altar is still by the sustaining grace of God. And we're children. But I want you to get this. And let's listen to this for just a minute here. Listen. We're not going to be able to get through all of this, but listen to this. When water is spoken of in the Scriptures, there are two ways that it's spoken of. There are two analogies that we draw from them. The first is, when it's used in Scripture about drinking, it's a type of the Holy Spirit. Come and drink of the water of life freely. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Oh, listen. Listen, dear one. Listen. I got water that you can drink from, and if you drink from this water, what will happen to you? You'll never get thirsty again. Remember, right? You'll never get th- You won't be in one again. My salvation is so complete. My work is so complete. If you receive the water that flows down from heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you receive it and you'll drink from this, I'll change you forever. And you don't have to come back and forth to this well anymore. This is temporary, but i got water that's eternal. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says it is through the witness of the Holy Spirit that the Son is known. Alright? John 7, verses 37-39. through 39, Jesus said this, Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. It's going to just flow. Wouldn't you just love to have a Christian life like that? That when you walk around, the Holy Spirit just flows out of you. And you already said, He defined that for us. He said, This He spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom He had not yet sent, because He had not yet been glorified. He said, as soon as I get to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He's going to fill you to overflowing. So this is the drink, the type of the Holy Spirit, but it's also used in cleansing. Okay, so it's either used, when it's used in in regard to drinking, it speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When it's used in regard to cleansing, listen to this, listen to this, this is so important. Get this. Y'all with me? Listen. Listen to this. When it is used for cleansing in the Scriptures, that is a type of God's Word. It's a type of God's Word. Every time it's talked about in regard to cleansing, it means the Word of the living God. Look at Psalm 119. Let's just go through a couple of examples. Can you go with me there? Turn right and go to Psalm 19. You're familiar with this. Psalm 19, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. I, I'm going to have to, I'm, we're going to have to end it here. This is half of what we need to go through about the water. I mean, probably a third of it. This is about a third of what we need to go through the water. Please, hang with me on this. This is life-changing, I hope. But can I say this in a, in a preview of coming attractions? If you are wandering around in the courtyard and you're not happy about it, and you want to move on in into an intimate relationship with the Lord. You are not a candidate for that ever without daily being washed by the Word. Enough said? Did you hear it? Listen, the, 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 the victory that keeps evading you. Man, I want it. Or maybe you don't want it. Maybe you're just settled in. Okay, go to heaven. If that's enough for you, 
I don't know. I, I don't know. I pray for you. I feel sorry for you, to be honest with you. But if that's enough for you, you can't do anything with that. Okay? But let's just say that it's evading you. You keep reaching out for it. Man, I hear people talk, and sometimes I see victory in others. I speculate it's there. We talk about the abundant life of Christ. We talk about the fullness of the peace and the joy that comes with walking in Him. But I can tell you this, I've experienced little or nothing of that. Or maybe I knew one day what it was like, but I don't know now. I'm parched in that victory that I keep wanting. And because I can't get it, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll fall into the trap of the devil and I'll blame everybody around me for my lack of victory. That's the first strategy for somebody who's not walking in victory. Find someone to blame other than the person who stares you back in the mirror. Well, you know, I've got so-and-so to blame. That's a trap. That's a lie from hell. That is not true. But if you want to move on into fellowship and you habitually, you habitually neglect God's Word and you do not go and take a bath, just your hands and your feet, you've already been cleansed from your sin as represented by your salvation, but you just, just the hands and feet are all. And just take a daily, a daily washing in God's Word. Confession of sin. God, keep short accounts with me. Let me be confessed up. Reveal to me whatever it is you're ready to reveal to me that you know I'm ready to handle so I can get rid of it in my life. And the Word of God illuminates that. The Word of God shares that with us. It doesn't look... We don't look into the Word of God. The Word of God looks into us. But that victory that you just can't keep falling short of and you're trying to acquire it while at the same time neglecting God's Word, i got news for you. Save yourself trouble. Forget it. Abandon any hope for having it because you're not. That's why in modern day church you can pull off just about anything in leadership because nobody checks you out with God's Word. You can just throw it across the radar screen and nobody's going to check it out because nobody's in it mostly. You ready? Psalm 119, verse 9 11. 9 through 11. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, and we'll close. We got so much to go through about the water. Please don't, don't miss this. How can a young man cleanse his way? That's a great question, isn't it? How can a young man walk and head toward that tabernacle, the inner, that represents fellowship with God? By taking heed according to your word there it is I don't care how emotional or out loud or how well you know the language it doesn't matter you can fool every last one of us hey you fool me whoop de do. if I fool you whoop de do. you know what have you got we're just mere people but you can't fool God and you can sashay around and know ten cent words like sanctification glorification atonement justification and all the Asians and the this and that's the other ones but until you're walking in intimate fellowship with Him, the victory that you think you have a right to have as a child of God, which you do, will evade you. Can I say this? We've talked about this time and again. We'll talk about it, God will it, until He comes. If He gives us favor to do it. In salvation, 
God seeks you. But in sanctification, you seek Him. Do you hear it? He drew you to the bronze altar. He drew you to the bronze altar. You didn't go just wake up one day and say, I sense this morning that I'm a sinner. And I sense that I have a need to repent of my sins and take my faith and give it to God so He can reward me for having it. No. You were on a track away from God as fast as you could go. And God sent the hounds of heaven after you. He convicted you of your sins and showed you that you have a need of a Savior and gave you the faith to believe in Him. Credit, 100% God. Lindsay, zero. That's the score in salvation. But then the tide gets turned. And then all of a sudden, Hebrews 11.6 applies. What? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to Him must believe that He is and that He rewards those who half-heartedly seek Him. He rewards those who are willing to go to the labor a hundred and fifty times a day if necessary and say, Lord, wash my hands and my feet because I've come to the point where the only thing in life that's worth anything to be is walking with you. That's it. I'm not courting anymore. I'm not looking anymore. I'm off the market. I'm unavailable. I'm just available for you. I don't care what you do through me. I don't care where you send me. I don't care if I'm never known. I don't care. Just let me walk with you. Let me pick up this Word in the morning and let me crack it open and hear you speak things to me that I've never known before. Open up heaven and transfigure yourself before me right there in the place of intimate fault, walk and fellowship. That's what worship is. We're asking way too much out of Brother Al in music worship. If you have not been worshiping all week, to come in here and crank you up for it. I love you, Brother Al, but you're not capable of that. Me either. Me either. You walk in here and don't meet him, you got yourself to blame. How can he keep his how can he keep your way, cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my what does he say? This is a man after God's own heart. Then we'll close. With portions of my heart I have sought you. say with my whole heart I have sought you oh let me not wonder from your commandments the implication if I don't seek you with my whole heart I will wonder from your commandments If you've drank this morning, you don't need to drink again. If you're saved, you're saved. You're either you're the one or two categories this morning. You know what they are. You're a saint or an ain't. And if you're a saint, 
You don't need to get saved again. We used to go minister to the prison, Reasonable State Prison. I know raising the prison ministry. And we'd go sing to the prisoners because my grandfather was part-time chaplain there. And we'd go in there and set up and do our thing. We played for Christian Christian band and we'd go sing for them. And every time we went, the entire room got saved. They did. You count on it. You give the invitation in the prison and every one of them who come to the service will get saved. Time and again. Time and again. Hearts are so polluted they don't understand. Once you take a drink, either Jesus can make good on His promises or He can't. But He said, if you drink of this salvation, you will never thirst again. However, many of us in here have had a drink, but we're running right by that labor every single day. We're running right by it. I'm going to tell you something. We're going to get further into this. But that could result in the life of a believer in premature death. I didn't make that up. And I'm going to show you in the Scriptures next week, God willing. It's, in, it's a New Testament principle. This is not Aaron and Moses and all them on the mountain and all this other stuff you read in Exodus and all that. That's the same God. But a New Testament principle to continue in it. Embrace it. Blame others. And say, you know what? I don't have victory. Knowing within your heart, you're the only one. If you don't have victory this morning, it's your choice. It's by choice. It's by choice.